All right, Treya. All earthly things with earth will fade away, but prayer grasps eternity. But I'm convinced of this, God does not hear prayer. He hears desperate prayer. Prayer is not a position, whether you need. Prayer is not a position, it's a disposition. You get to the place where you'd rather sweat, you'd rather weep in his presence than laugh in anybody else's presence. You'd rather God whisper a speaker into your heart that breaks you. And somebody give you the prizes that all the world covets. Prayer is almost the greatest human privilege that we have. Well, good morning, church. Uh, if you would, open your Bible to James chapter number 5. James chapter number five, uh, James is toward the end of the New Testament. It's a pretty small uh, book, maybe a little bit of a challenge to find, but make your way uh, to James chapter number five. Uh, we've been in a, a series about prayer for several weeks now. I'm a little sad. Uh, this is the, the second to last uh, time we'll be in the prayer uh, series, and so it's, it's drawing to an end. Now, it doesn't mean we'll never talk about prayer again, but it does mean that this particular series is, uh, is, is coming to an end soon. So uh, as you turn to James chapter number five, I read about a, a man who encountered a bit of trouble while flying his airplane. He called to the control tower and here's what he said. He said, pilot to tower, I'm 300 miles from the airport, 600 feet above the ground and I'm out of fuel. I am descending rapidly Please advise, over. The tower to the pilot says back to him, here's how the dispatcher began, repeat after me, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, I don't think this is a true story, but it does help us to realize something important about our prayer lives. Ask yourself this question, do I only pray when there's an emergency? Do I only pray when there's an emergency? Now listen, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that you shouldn't pray when there's an emergency. Uh, I'm not saying that that's not an okay time to pray. Of course, you should pray when there's an emergency. But have we forgotten that prayer is so much more than our 911 call to God, right? Instead of it being something that we do every day, like breathing, eating, walking, talking, it seems that prayer has become like that little glass-covered box on the wall that says, break in case of emergency. As a matter of fact, Bill Hybels, in his book, Too Busy Not to Pray, wrote this, prayer is an unnatural activity. From birth, we have been hearing the rule of self-reliance as we strain and struggle to achieve self-sufficiency. Prayer flies in the face of those deep-seated values. It's an assault on human autonomy, an indictment of an independent living. To people in the fast lane, determined to make it their own, prayer is an embarrassing interruption. Prayer is alien to our proud human nature. Prayer is, for the most part, an untapped resource, an unexplored continent where untold treasure remains to be unearthed. As a matter of fact, Einstein is famously reported in a lecture that he gave to Princeton University. He had a dissertation student ask him a question. He said, Einstein, everything else has been written about, everything else has been studied. How is a man to find a dissertation to write about that has not already been written? If you don't know this, if you do a PhD or a doctorate of some kind and you have to do a dissertation, you have to do it on something that is unique to you in that moment. You cannot do a dissertation on something that's already been done. So the student said, Einstein, everything's been done. What could I do a dissertation on? And Einstein himself replied, let's do something on prayer. Someone needs to find out. Someone needs to see if it's real. Someone needs to discover the reality of prayer. Friends, prayer is talked about more than anything else, and it's practiced less than anything else. And yet for the believer, it remains one of the greatest gifts our Lord has given us outside of salvation. Instead of living lives that are filled with prayer, prayer has become more like the concept of a famous football play. 
Most of us are familiar with that desperate final play called at the end of a football game when there's no other hope of winning. They call it the Hail Mary play. You know why they call it that? They call it that because it's named after a famous prayer called the Hail Mary. All the players will run down the field as far as they can, and the quarterback will, as they say, simply throw up a prayer. It's a last-ditch effort. It's the final thing you can do. It's what you do when there's nothing else left to do. I wonder how many times you would agree with me that your prayer life has amounted to nothing more than throwing up a prayer when you're desperate. Matter of fact, I heard someone this morning say, shame on me, how many times have I had a conversation with somebody and said, well, you know what, the least I can do is pray for you. Or you know what, I'll tell you what, all I have to offer is a prayer. How often is that the way we think about prayer? When it shouldn't be, it's my last resort. It shouldn't be, all I have to offer is this. It shouldn't be, this is all I can do for you. It should be, hey friend, i tell you what I'll do on your behalf. I'll seek out the God in heaven. Prayer's not our last resort. It's not the only thing that we can do. We don't just throw up a prayer when we are desperate. In case you don't know or you've forgotten, God has a much greater expectation for our prayer lives. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Well, look at James chapter number five. We'll begin reading in verse number 13. Listen to what James writes about prayer. He writes, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, verse 16, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. Now listen, James is no stranger to prayer. In fact, you may not know this, but James, who was the pastor at what we might call First Baptist Church Jerusalem, had a nickname because he prayed so much. His nickname was Camel Knees. It was because his knees had such calluses on them because he spent so much time on his knees in prayer. As a matter of fact, this is not the first time James mentions prayer in this letter. He talks about it in James chapter one, talks about it again in James chapter four. He brings it up again in James chapter five. Why? Because he believed in the power of prayer. It was more than just a last resort. It was more than just in case of emergency. It's how he operated, it's how he lived his life, he prayed. So if anyone, possibly anyone outside of Jesus in the New Testament who could instruct us on God's expectations for our prayer life, it would certainly be James, the pastor of First Baptist Church, Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, from this reading, from this text, I want to show you a couple of things that James teaches us, that God teaches us about his expectations on our prayer life. Let me start with the first one. Here's what I want to show you. God expects us to pray in response to suffering. This is not groundbreaking. Most of you would say, Danny, this is exactly what I would say constitutes as an emergency. You just told us we should pray outside of the emergencies. But when I suffer, that is an emergency to me. So I pray. Well, listen, friends, God expects us to pray in response to suffering. Look back at verse 13. James wrote, is anyone among you suffering, right? Okay, yes, suffering, got it, check. Here's the remedy that James gives. Let him pray. Now, the word for suffering is exactly what you might suspect. It means to suffer physical pain. It means to suffer hardship. It means distress. It means to suffer misfortune. Now, listen, you might suffer with some ailments or some simple things or a headache or an ingrown toenail. Like, those kind of things are real. I'm with you. But the suffering that James is talking about goes beyond those types of sufferings. In fact, the Apostle Paul expresses his suffering for Jesus with this same word in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9. Here's what Paul wrote. He said, for which I am suffering. There's the word that James also uses. 
bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. What's Paul talking about? He's talking about the suffering that he's experiencing for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He uses it again in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5. He writes, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure, here's the word, suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. The word is used to describe anyone who is in trouble. Now here's where that relates to us as believers, as those who long to live for Jesus in a world that hates him, we will in fact experience trouble. We will experience suffering. Jesus said this famously to his disciples in John chapter 16. Here's what he said to them. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace because in the world you will have tribulation. You know what Jesus is saying? It's clear. You will have tribulation. You will have trouble. You will suffer. It's something to be expected for every person who follows Jesus. However, what's beautiful about John 16 is that Jesus doesn't leave us on our own. It doesn't end with, in the world you will have tribulation. Good luck, buddy. Hope you make it. See you soon. No, no. He continues to say in John 16, though the world, in this world you will have tribulation, take heart. I have overcome the world. You know what Jesus is saying? He's saying, be cheerful. You know why that should sound familiar? Because that is exactly what James says next. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. This is what Jesus said. Be cheerful, friends. Be happy. Take heart. I have overcome the world. Danny, why pray when I suffer? if God doesn't help me? Why pray when these things are happening if nothing changes? Well, friends, Jesus never promises that the problem, the suffering, the trouble will go away. He never promises to bring instant relief. As a matter of fact, here's what Chuck Swindoll wrote. He said, but he does promise, talking about Jesus, he does promise to provide strength for patient perseverance. Prayer doesn't express faith in God to deliver us from trials, but to deliver us through trials. When we're afflicted, when we suffer, when we're in trouble, James would tell us, Jesus would tell us, it's time to pray. You say, Danny, why? Well, I love what the writer of Hebrews put in chapter number 10. He tells us to draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Why? Because Jesus died for us, gave us access to God so that we could receive his power, even in the midst of our suffering, to be cheerful, to sing praise, to live our lives in the midst of that suffering, not in spite of the suffering. I love what... S.D. Gordon wrote in comparison to Jesus in his book, Quiet Talks on Prayer. He pointed to the life of Christ when it came to prayer. Here's what he wrote. It was not only his regular habit, but his resort in every emergency, every situation, however slight or serious. When perplexed, he prayed. When hard-pressed by work, he prayed. When hungry for fellowship, he found it in prayer. He chose his associates. He received his messages upon his knees. If tempted, he prayed. If criticized, he prayed. If fatigued in body or wearied in spirit, he fell before the Father in an unfailing habit of prayer. Prayer brought him unmeasured power at the beginning and kept the flow unbroken and undiminished. It wasn't his last resort. He began there. There was no emergency, no difficulty, no necessity, no temptation that would not yield to prayer. Jesus prayed, and so should we. As James says, if there is anyone suffering, let him pray. Why? Because cheerful praise, the response that we get in that prayer is that God conforms our heart to his. You know what the word cheerful means that James uses in verse 13? It means to be encouraged. This is certainly what praying will do for the soul. It will encourage it. It will make it cheerful even when it seems like we shouldn't be. As a matter of fact, Job is a great example for us of what this looks like in everyday life. 
In chapter one, after Job had lost his family, lost his finances, lost his friends, lost everything that he had, here's what Job said. It says he arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. That was his response to God. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He didn't say, God, take away the suffering. God, what are you doing? What are you thinking? God, this can't be the right step to make. No, he worships God in the midst of it. Why? Because as he sought after God, even though the suffering did not leave, cheerful was the response. Praise was the response. Paul uses the same word. It's the only time that we find this exact word in the New Testament. It's used in Acts chapter 27. Paul's on his way to Rome by ship as a prisoner to stand before Caesar. He's given the opportunity by God to profess the name of Christ to the greatest leaders in his world. Jesus is giving him this opportunity. Well, on his way, he tells the captain of the ship, hey, we need to stop. There's a storm coming. Let's wait, and then we'll continue our voyage. But the captain of the ship decides, no, we can make it, so they leave. And on their way, exactly what Paul talked about happened. A storm so severe took place, everybody on the ship thought they were going to die. As a matter of fact, they threw everything off the ship so that they could make it through the storm except for people. Everything else was gone. And they were fearful. They thought they were going to die. And here's what the apostle Paul said. He said, I urge you to take heart. You know what that means? It's the word for cheerful. He tells them, be cheerful. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. He tells them again later in Acts 27, so take heart, be cheerful, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. How could they take heart? How could they be cheerful? They were facing shipwreck. They were facing certain death. They were facing suffering. Anybody in here feel like that? Danny, that's me that James is talking about. I'm facing suffering. Yet Paul could say, take heart, be cheerful, because his confidence was in God and it came from his communion with God. His praise was birthed from his prayers. Friends, could it be, could it be that you lack confidence in God because you lack communion with God? Could it be that your praise is limited because, friends, your prayers have been limited? This is what prayer does. It produces faith from fellowship. You would have more patience if you had more prayer. So, friend, here's what James would tell you. Pray if you are suffering. One of my favorite preachers, you probably never heard about him before. His name's Adrian Rogers. Matter of fact, he's gone on to be with the Lord, and he's still preaching better sermons than I do. He gives four reasons why a loving God would allow suffering in the life of a Christian. You may be here this morning, you're saying, Daniel, okay, I understand it, pray when I'm suffering, but why won't it leave? Why doesn't it go away? Why doesn't God end it? Well, friend, that's not the promise that he makes. The prayer is not, God, will you remove the suffering, although you can certainly pray that. But if he decides not to, it's because we trust our prayers are believing, not in our purpose, but his. And so we pray, and we experience peace, and we experience cheer, and we experience praise because the suffering leaves? No, because we're connected to the one who has it all in the palm of his hand. So you say, Danny, why would suffering continue? I don't really know, but here's four reasons that the Bible gives us for why a believer might experience suffering and it doesn't go away. Here's the first one from Dr. Rogers. Suffering produces power. Power in a way that maybe nothing else can. This is from 2 Corinthians chapter 12. This is the apostle Paul when he had been praying that the Lord would take some suffering from him. Here's what he wrote. But God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So what did Paul do? He boasted the more in his weakness. Why? Because in his suffering, it produced power. Secondly, suffering produces productivity. You might do more, serve more, live more for the glory of God because of your suffering. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Well, Paul also wrote this to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 6. He said, if we are afflicted, you know what he's saying? If we suffer, if we experience trouble, it is for your comfort and your salvation. What's he talking about? He's saying, I am suffering now and I endure it because my suffering produces 
productivity, fruit on your behalf rather than mine. So he says, God, bring on the suffering if it produces power. He says, God, bring on the suffering if it produces productivity. He says, bring on the suffering if it produces purity. That's the third thing that suffering can do in the life of a believer. Here's what Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 5. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish. Now don't miss what Peter said. You're not restored, confirmed, strengthened, and established before the suffering. No, no, it's after you suffer for a little while that God brings about this type of purity. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Suffering produces purity. Job wrote this in chapter 23, verse 10. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. Maybe that your suffering is refining you into something that nothing else can refine you into. Suffering produces purity. The last thing he mentions, Dr. Rogers that is, is that suffering produces praise. You may remember this or not, but after Jesus has been resurrected and he forgives Peter for denying him. Him and Peter have a conversation where Peter's like, hey, Jesus, what do I do now, right? And Jesus tells him exactly what his life is going to amount to. And after he tells him what it's going to amount to, in John chapter 21, verse 19, we have this statement. This he said, talking about Jesus prophesying over the life of Peter, this he said to show by what kind of death, now listen to this, he was to have to glorify God. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Even in death, it might mean that we would bring more glory to God than life. So let me tell you something, friends. Maybe suffering is there to produce praise. I don't know why suffering's there. That's up to God, not me. I don't have infinite wisdom, even though you probably think I do. Just kidding. But God does. And so in your suffering, he's producing something. So your response in that suffering should be to pray. Why? So that it will be over? No. So that you can have his perspective for why suffering is happening to you. So that you can see how it's bringing glory to him above goodness for yourself. You with me? Second thing James says, which by the way, we spent way too much time there. Number two, God expects us to pray in response to sickness. God expects us to pray in response to suffering. That's true. God also expects us to pray in response to sickness. This is why James said, look back at verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. If you're sick, pray. Now that's not uncommon for us. You're like, Danny, we pray for people all the time who are sick. I agree. God expects us to pray in response to sickness. The word that James uses for the word sick is what you would suspect it to be. It means to be in a state of weakness or to be feeble due to sickness. Now, all people deal with various sickness. The Christian is no exception to that rule. This word is used multiple times to talk about people who are sick all throughout the Bible. It's the word used of a royal officer's son who's about to die in John chapter 4. It's the word used by Mary and Martha concerning Lazarus's illness before he dies in John chapter 11. It's used of Dorcas, who also dies shortly after in Acts chapter 9. It's used of uh, uh, Epaphroditus, who uh, uh, sickness brought him closer to death in Philippians chapter 2. This is the idea that we think of when our bodies are physically harmed because of a sickness that has taken place. Now, what do we do typically when we're sick? Well, we go to the doctor, right? We make an appointment, we get a specialist to look at what's going on. Of course, we ask our church to pray for us, that's, that's implied, but we go see someone who can fix the problem. That's common practice for us. We say, Danny, what does that have to do with verse number 14? Well, their common practice at this time wasn't to go to the doctor, it wasn't as common for them. Instead, they were to call for the elders, the pastors of their church to come and pray for them. And what would they do? Well, they followed three practices. First of all, they would pray over the people, right? You would call for the elders to come and pray. This is what we still do, by the way. You may not ask me to come to your house, but in your Sunday school class, you've got a list of people you're praying for, right? Midweek services here on Wednesday nights, we've got a list of people that we pray for. Most of those are because of sickness. Your personal prayer time, you probably pray for people who are sick. Why? Because God's the only one who can heal. So we pray that he would heal 
sickness. Another thing they would do is they would anoint someone with oil. Now, Danny, is there something magical about oil? No. Oil has always been and still is used for medicinal purposes. That was their medicine. It's likely that this was common practice and not necessarily a blanket formula for universal healing. By the way, side note, if you said, Danny, James said, call for the elders and, and anoint them with oil and, and, and pray over them and, and you'll be healed from your sickness. But I did that. Why didn't it happen? Because James has not given you a foolproof formula of an automatic response from God. He's not a genie in a bottle for you. He's not on strings like a puppet where you say, oh, if I have this bottle of oil and I put it on their head, then God's got to do what I want him to do. Right now, that's not how God responds. Here's what James is saying. That was medicine for them. It was just logical that they would use oil in, in order to try to heal a sickness that someone has. You say, Danny, what do you mean by that? Well, this is what the good Samaritan did in Jesus's parable in Luke chapter 10. Did the oil instantly make the, the, the stranger that had been robbed get up from that moment and go on about his way? No. Matter of fact, he had to bandage up, his, bandage up his wounds. He had to put the oil on him. He had to keep him at an inn, right? He had to stay there even longer than the Good Samaritan could stay. It took him time to heal. Well, what was the healing agent? It was oil. That's what they did, medicinal purposes. So they would pray over him. They would anoint them with oil, medicine, right? Apply that to them. And then all this was done in the name of the Lord. That's the third piece. I read this week that oil could have been symbolic for the Holy Spirit. It wasn't that they thought the oil could heal somebody. It was that they were seeking God, his name, his power to change what only he could change. The results were not left in the hands of the elders or in the oil. The ultimate healing was in God's hands. This is where miracle and medicine come together in scripture. This is where in our day we go before God and say, God, will you heal this sickness, please? And then we use common sense, common practice to go to the doctor and see what can be done. That particular part might not be supernatural, but could it be that God has placed doctors and medicine and advancements in technology so that people could be made well? Is it any less of a miracle if God uses medicine or a doctor or a hospital to heal versus just snapping his fingers? Of course not. This is where medicine and miracle comes together. As a matter of fact, I read a story from one of my favorite commentary writers. He talked about one of his children, as one of his daughters. She was born, and when she was born, she was cross-eyed. And so he had a friend who came in one time, he was a guest preacher. He said, hey brother, have you ever just applied James chapter five and asked the elders to come and anoint her and saw her eyes be healed? Have you done that yet? And he's like, well, no, we, we hadn't done that. So he said, okay, well, let's do it. So that guest preacher comes over and all those elders come with him and they anoint the daughter with oil and then they look up after they pray and she's still cross-eyed. So the next morning they go to sleep, the next morning they get up, they run to her room and they look and guess what? She's still cross-eyed. And then the next day, still the same, the next week, still the same, the next month, still the same, she's still cross-eyed, but her church continued to pray. People continued to pray. More and more people heard about her situation and prayed and guess what happened through that prayer? Somebody contacted John. They said, John, I know a doctor in another part of the country who could probably handle this issue. And so John contacts the doctor and the doctor says, yeah, y'all come for a visit. They go. The doctor said, yeah, this is a common thing. I've got a procedure that will fix this. Bring her in when she's about two years old and, and, and we'll fix the problem. So John did. And guess what? It was fixed. You say, Danny, that wasn't the miracle he was expecting. Probably not. But here's what John wrote about it. He said, so that's what we did, and that's what the doctor did, and that's what the Lord did, and she's healed. I love what Alec Motor said. He said, when the aspirin works, it is the Lord who made it work. When the surgeon sets the broken limb and the bone knits, it is the Lord who has made it knit. There's always a spiritual dimension in healing. On no occasion should a Christian approach the doctor without also approaching God. So James would say, as is common to us, if you struggle, pray. If you're sick, pray. But I want to show you something that oftentimes is taken out of context in James chapter 5. It's about to get heavy. We're almost out of time, and I need to spend about 20 minutes here. So let's go fast. Third thing that James shows us is that God expects us to pray in response to sin. 
in response to sin. And you say, Danny, this is kind of weird with where we are in the text. I agree. Let me help you understand what James is writing. Look back at verse 15. Here's what James wrote. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, did you catch that first sentence? You may have read this before. You may have heard somebody quote this to you before. You may have been in the unfortunate situation before where you prayed for miraculous healing, and nobody got healed, and then someone looked at you and said, well, it must not have been a prayer of faith. I guess you just didn't believe enough. I guess you just didn't trust that God would heal them. It's got to be on you. You ever heard responses like that? Danny, I, I mustered up all the faith that I could. I have no faith left. I gave it all to God, but nothing changed. Man, I've heard so many people say that before. So what is James talking about in this context? Is he talking about our faith has the power to heal? Well, I, I want to give you a couple of little, little guide marks as we talk about the difficulty of this text. Here are the here are the marks that I want to give you, little, little pillars to, to put up in our minds as we wrestle through issues in this arena of James chapter 5. There's, there's four of them. Let me give them to you. Number one, due to sin nature, original sin and brokenness in our world, everyone endures suffering and sickness. Not just people, animals endure it, creation endures it. The world endures it because of original sin. Now, I know what you're thinking, Danny, that's a cop-out. You're just like, well, if you can't explain it, just like, well, you know, God. I understand, but it's true. Our world is broken because of sin. Let me show you the second pillar to keep in your mind as we wrestle through this arena. Suffering and sickness can be a direct result of personal sin. It can be. I'm not saying yours is. That's between you and God. What I'm saying is it can be a direct result of personal sin. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Well, if you were to take your Bible and read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 through 30, you would discover people who even died because of their sin. King David shares this experience in Psalm chapter 32. He tells them that I feel weak, I feel pressured, I feel sickly because of my sin, but then I confessed my transgressions to the Lord and he forgave my sin, healed him. David even lost a child due to his sin because of what he had did. Suffering and sickness can be a direct result of personal sin. Let me show you the third pillar as we think about this. Suffering and sickness doesn't have to be a direct result of personal sin. Now you're like, okay, daddy, you really are trying to just create some cop-outs here. You just said everybody does it. You just said it's because of sin. Now you're saying it's not because of sin. What are you talking about? Well, just because it can be a result of personal sin doesn't mean it has to be. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Think about Jesus. Did he ever suffer? Yes. Did he ever sin? No. Think about Job. The whole book is about the fact that he did not sin before God, yet he suffered, yet he experienced sickness. There are all kinds of cases in the Bible where this is true. Suffering and sickness doesn't have to be a direct result of personal sin. And then there's the last one, and maybe the most challenging, the fourth pillar to keep in your mind as we wrestle in this text, in this arena. It's not God's will that everyone will be healed in this life. It's not. You say, Danny, how does he choose? I have no idea. I'm not God. But I know that it can't be his will for everyone to be healed in this life because everyone is not healed in this life. Now, I'm not talking about spiritual healing. That he offers through Jesus. If the context in which James is writing about is strictly spiritual healing, everyone can be healed in that way. Jesus died for the world. But we know sickness and death and suffering will not end until God sets up his kingdom. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Well, if you read in Revelation 21, here's what you will learn. One day, every sickness will be no more. One day, there will be no more tears. One day, suffering will end. Jesus will end it all, friends. But can I tell you something? This is not that day. So until he does, we endure suffering and we endure sickness and we endure sin because we are in this world. Now, with that arena, I know you're like, Danny, you just spent a whole bunch of time. I want to answer a couple questions in this context. Well, Danny, with that in mind, what does it mean when James says prayer of faith? 
Does this mean our faith is what saves or what heals? Was someone not healed because I didn't believe enough? Was someone healed because I did believe enough? Well, friends, I want to dispel this lie that healing is based on your faith. Now, I know that may be a little unique to maybe something you've heard or been taught, but let me just, let me just share this with you. This is from John Phillips. Listen to what he writes. He wrote, the obvious fallacy in that line of thinking that healing is based on your faith and not God is that it persuades people to put their faith in their faith. Do you see the problem? It's a self-defeating process. The false theology behind this is the idea that the more faith we have, the more results we get, which is a barefaced contradiction of the teachings of Jesus himself. You say, Danny, how is that against what he teaches? Well, if you read in Luke chapter 17, verses five and six, you know what Jesus tells his disciples? He says, here's how much faith you need to make a mountain move from here to there, the size of a mustard seed. And you say, Danny, why is that not very much faith? You ever seen a mustard seed? Jesus said it needs that much faith. That's not a whole lot. I would bet we have that type of faith in the room. I also don't think that James is telling us that someone is healed or I am healed based on the power of my faith, because if that was the case, wouldn't the apostle Paul have had his affliction taken away that he prayed for in 2 Corinthians? Who has more faith, in our opinion, in the New Testament outside of Jesus than the apostle Paul? If it's based on faith, he had it. Yet here's what Paul said. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but it didn't. Also, do you remember Jesus' conversation with the dad that brought his son to Jesus in order to cast out a demon. It's in Mark chapter nine. Jesus said to him, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, listen to this. The father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Clearly his faith wasn't that strong because he needed Jesus to help his unbelief. He knew his belief wouldn't heal him. He needed Jesus to heal him. Also, if you continue in that story after he's healed, Jesus doesn't tell his disciples more faith was needed for them to cast out this demon. He tells them more prayer is needed to cast out this demon. I don't think God's healing, the prayer of faith, is based on your amount of faith in order for the result to happen. Now, okay, Danny, if that's true, does this mean that faith doesn't matter in prayer? Well, certainly that's not the case. I don't think the result is based on your amount or lack thereof, but I do think the result is based on the fact that your prayer is in faith at all, that it's a believing prayer. The writer of Hebrews reminds us of this in chapter 11. When he writes, without faith, it's impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now listen to me, friends, don't get confused. I believe in believing prayer. I believe in prayers of faith. That's not what I'm saying. Here's what I am saying. The belief, the faith, the trust, the confidence isn't in getting what I want like a genie granting me a wish. The prayer of faith is one that trusts God to answer the prayer however he sees best. I'm not trusting that God will give me my results that I want. I'm trusting that whatever God does do, that's what should be done. That's the prayer of faith. Have you been missing that? in your prayer life when God doesn't answer the way you expect him to answer. There's so much that we could talk about when it comes to why God answers prayer the way he does. But friends, I don't pretend to know the mind of God. I'm not him and neither are you. So here's what I do. I follow on what Isaiah said in chapter 55, verses eight through nine. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. However, I will also always claim the promise of God in Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I believe those things. I don't know what he's up to, but I know he's working. And so I trust that it will be for my good, even if it's beyond what I think my good is. He knows me. He made me. He created me. He understands my desires better than I do. He knows. And so I trust not to get my results, but that he knows what's best. George Mueller, in his book, Answers to Prayers, I really do have to hurry, I'm sorry. He gives us a list of five conditions of prevailing prayer, which I think is 
powerful and important for us to remember in this context. Number one, he says, entire dependence upon the merits and meditation of the Lord Jesus Christ as the only ground of any claim for blessing. In other words, faith in Jesus is a prerequisite for prayer. If you don't have a relationship with Christ, if your, air, uh, your prayers are being hindered, it could be because you don't follow Jesus. He will not hear the prayer unless it is first one of repentance and confession for him to be your Lord and Savior. That's a prerequisite for prayer. Number two, condition, separation from all known sin. Have you confessed the sin in your life so that Jesus can hear from your heart? Third condition, faith in God's word or trust in the promises of scripture. This would be believing prayer or prayers of faith that trust in God. Number four, condition, asking in accordance with his will. Have you been praying with the wrong motives instead of praying for God's purposes? The fifth condition that he says is urgent or persistent in supplication or request. This is the prayer of the persistent follower of Jesus. Could it be that you don't have because you haven't asked? All right, Danny, so if my prayer, my, the results of prayer is not because of my faith, yet prayer does require believing faith, are you telling me that God won't heal regardless of what I do because he doesn't perform miracles of healing? Well, of course he still performs miracles of healing. He can and will perform healing miracles whenever it's his will. I love what Leslie Ludy wrote in her book, Wrestling Prayer. She said, prayer is not supposed to be all that we do, but it is supposed to undergird all that we do. We must believe that God's pattern is the right pattern. And not just that it's the right pattern, but that it works. God's all we have, friends. All right, Danny, so if the prayer of faith isn't my amount of faith in prayer to produce healing, then what is James talking about in James chapter 5 verse 15 when he talks about the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick? Well, if you read this context, James isn't talking about healing from physical sickness. James alone, he is talking about physical sickness. But he's talking about something deeper than that. James is actually talking about discipline that happens to people because of their sin. Now, I want to give you two things that the prayer of faith could mean in this context based on that truth, and we're going to get there. Here's the first one. I believe discipline happens for every person spiritually who does not know Jesus. So everyone who doesn't have a relationship with Christ right now is condemned because of their sin. Therefore, the discipline that God places on you is eternal punishment in a place called hell. And apart from receiving Christ as your Lord and Savior, by the way, apart from the prayer of faith that I believe Jesus died for my sins and he is the Lord of my life and I confess that to him, apart from that, that discipline remains on you and you will not be healed. But I also believe he's talking about Christians in this context. Well, Danny, if they're Christians, then the prayer of faith is not salvation. I agree. So what is the prayer of faith? Well, I believe in this case, it's still dealing with discipline, but not eternal discipline, but church discipline. I believe what James is actually telling us is that there are some people in the church who have found their way into sin and they have not prayed and confessed and repented and believed in the power of Jesus to change them. And so they haven't come out of it. And so James is saying to them, for those who will confess their sin and repent, those who will pray in faith that Jesus is better and turn from those things, they will be healed. As a matter of fact, here's what they need to do. They need to call on the elders of the church. They need to get them to come and pray over them, anoint them with oil, and then they will be forgiven of their sins as they confess them, and they'll be reunited with their church. I think James is talking about church discipline. There's some people that have been excommunicated because of what sin has done in their life, and they need to ask for forgiveness before they can be made right. You say, Danny, why do you come to that conclusion? Well, I come to it because of what James says in verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. This is why I think James is saying that God expects us to pray in response to sin. Whether it's salvation, confessing your sin for the very first time, prayer of faith so that you can be saved, so that Christ can raise you up and you could be forgiven, so that you can walk in new life as a follower of him, or whether he's talking about church discipline because of some sickness that sin has produced in your life and you need healing and forgiveness and repentance and restoration, whichever one it is, you need to confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Why? So that you may be healed. Now I know what you're thinking. You're like, Danny, sin doesn't cause sickness. Well, let me give you a couple examples. I know I need to hurry. I'm with you. Imagine you're a drunkard. Danny, is it a sin to drink? It's not. 
I would advise that it's a poor decision, but it's not a sin. Danny, is it a sin to be drunk? Absolutely. If you lose the power over yourself and you're a drunkard, yes, you have sin in your life and you need to confess it before God. If you don't, anybody wanna elaborate on what happens when you get drunk? You get sick. That's why they call it intoxicated because you've put poison in your body to an extent that your stomach says, I want this out of me and there's the sickness, right? Some people call this a hangover. I've never experienced one. I'm not bragging. I've experienced plenty of other things. But some of you would go, yeah, Danny, that hangover thing, it's a serious business, right? Well, what happens when you sin that way? You get sick. Well, how do you stop from being sick anymore? You confess it and repent and don't get drunk no more. Makes sense, right? Well, what about gluttony? Uh Uh-oh. What happens if you eat too much food? Guess what? You get all kinds of sickness. It's probably the leading cause of death in America. People who are obese, heart disease, heart failure, all kinds of issues, high blood pressure, whatever. You might not have those based on that, but you can. So you say, Danny, I really pray that God would heal me of these sicknesses that I have because of my gluttony. No, friend. God's not going to heal you in your sin like that. Here's what he says. Confess that sin, repent from it, stop eating too much, and you'll be healed. You say, Danny, that's dumb. All right, what about anxiety and worry? Bible says don't worry for anything. Well, what happens when we do? What happens when we experience excessive worry and anxiety? We literally get sick from it. It physically hurts us. We say, Danny, how can I be healed from that? Confess that sin, repent from it, and you'll be healed from it. So you say, Danny, you mean James isn't saying if I just put oil on somebody's head and believe enough, they'll be healed and start walking down the aisles? Yes, that's what I'm saying. For all of you who have believed, well, I didn't pray hard enough, or why wasn't my mama healed, or why didn't you know, my child get this? Or, that's not what James is talking about. He's saying when you do suffer, pray, and God will give you the perspective you need. Doesn't mean the suffering will leave, but he'll give you what you need in it. When you're sick, he says, pray. Why? So that everything will go away? No, so that you'll get his perspective, so that you can continue to walk the way he wants you to walk through it. You say, Danny, what's God saying? He expects us to pray in response to sin. Why? Because the only way we'll be healed from sickness caused by sin is to kill the sin. (laughs) I said this in the early service, and I think it was a little confusing. I didn't mean it this way, but one of the most interesting quotes that I've ever heard is from a famous preacher named D.L. Moody. And in the quote, it, it said that D.L. Moody's at a, at a revival service or something like that, and somebody brings a prayer of a pastor friend of theirs who is getting really sick because of his weight, because he'd been eating so poorly his entire life. Now he was experiencing some issues health-wise. And D.L. Moody's famously quoted for saying, no, I will not pray for him, because it's not, it's not, that's not the sickness that's his problem. The problem is the sin in his life that he's never been able to overcome because he hasn't confessed it to God. Now, I'm not saying don't pray for people in their sin. By all means, pray for them. But D.L. Moody was saying, I'm not going to ask God to get rid of that sickness when that sickness is caused by your sin. Rather, I'll pray, God, will you help him see his sin so that he can confess it to you and be healed? So friends, that's what he's saying. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed because the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. You say, Danny, what do you mean? You say, Jesus, I need you. I'm not righteous because of me. I'm righteous because of Christ. So therefore, I can confess my sin, I turn from that life, I seek after Jesus, and that prayer from a righteous person in Christ has great power as it works to heal yourself from that sin. So friend, what do you have in your life that needs to be confessed before Jesus that he longs to heal you from if you will confess it? I love this quote from Leonard Ravenhill. I'm finished, I promise. We have adopted the convenient theory that the Bible is a book to be explained, whereas first and foremost, it is a book to be believed, and after that, to be obeyed. So friend, what if we actually started obeying it? What would happen if we simply started praying as God tells us to, obeying as God tells us to, what might happen in our lives? Last thing, I'm done, I promise. James shows us this. God expects us to pray in response to suffering and sickness and sin for sure, but God also expects us to pray in response to all situations. 
Say, Danny, all you talked about was emergencies, and that's what all those sounded like. Well, friend, James closes it all out with this. Pray away, friends, all the time. In every situation, would you pray? He uses an example of Elijah. And in that example, in verses 17 and 18, James teaches us four things about prayer that are significant. First, there's an emphasis on personal prayer. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. There wasn't nothing special about him. He was just like you and me. You know what was special? He prayed. There's an emphasis on personal prayer. There's an emphasis on passionate prayer. He prayed fervently. That's what James said. There's an emphasis on passionate prayer. There's an emphasis on purposeful prayer. He had a reason for what he was praying for. There's an emphasis on persistent prayer. It says he prayed, and then he prayed again. He continued to pray and ask of God. Friends, when will we realize the power of prayer? When will we pray in such a way that would be described as fervent and earnest and passionate and persistent prayer? Jim Elliott wrote these words. He said, the saint who advances on his knees, never retreats. Do you believe that today? Listen, there's so many verses in the Bible about prayer. We could spend weeks upon weeks upon weeks upon weeks talking about the theology of prayer and how supernatural God works through it. I can't begin to explain it all. I don't know it all. But here's what I do know. When you're suffering, James says, pray. Why? So that you can see what God's doing in the midst of your suffering. I do know that when you're sick, James says, pray. Why? So that you can understand what this sickness is doing for the glory of God. You need that perspective in your life. I do know that James says, when you sin, pray. Why? Because even when you make some of the dumbest decisions you will ever make in your life, God's not done with you yet. So here's what you need, his perspective, so that you can see how even in your worst mistakes, God can turn them into his masterpieces. We need his perspective. Here's what I know. James says in all situations, pray like Elijah, pray. Why? Because we need Jesus. Friends, I think there are two responses this morning that are so important. They both have to do with this phrase, the prayer of faith. I guarantee there are people in this room this morning who the first prayer that God will ever hear is right now this morning when it's a prayer of faith and you say, Jesus, I need you to save me from my sins. There are people in this room who need to do that. You know what I love about the series on prayer? I've said it a whole bunch of times. When we respond, we get to pray. It's beautiful. So this morning, if you don't know Jesus, I'm gonna be in that lobby, you come find me, I'll take my Bible, I'll open it up, I'll tell you how you can begin following Jesus and we will pray together back there so that you can ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, prayer of faith. But for many others in this room, here's what I know, the prayer of faith doesn't have to do with salvation. It has to do with God's perspective in your life. He certainly wants to give you power. He wants to give you perspective. He wants to give you peace. He is at work and he's asking for the prayers that are working. He's asking his people to seek him. Pray away every situation, every moment, always your response, not the last resort, but the first resort should be to pray. Will it happen like you want it to happen? No, that's not what the prayer of faith is. The prayer of faith is not you getting what you want. God is not a puppet in your hands. Prayer faith is trusting God's ways is better than your own. Hey, how many need to do that this morning? <laughs> yeah, me too. Well, maybe this invitation, this response time is for you to link up with God and say, you know what, God? I got some junk in my life too. I need a prayer of faith today to trust you in all things. Ah, I love that our response time, we get to pray. So let's do it. Father, we love you. Jesus, we love you. You're awesome. Thank you. 